listening to the Coronavirus Diaries, Human Rights in the Age of a Global Pandemic, a series of online conversations with experts hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. The Institute is Canada's leading think tank, working at the intersection of human rights, conflict, and emerging technologies. As we watch the global pandemic unfold, this series will look at what impacts the coronavirus will have on human rights, geopolitics, and democracy, and what role technology and disinformation will play. So hello, uh, this is Kyle Matthews, Executive Director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Um, very pleased today for our second interview on the, um, uh, the Coronavirus Diaries, Human Rights in the Age of the Global Pandemic, to have on our show uh, Marcus Kolga. Uh, Marcus is a well-known uh, commentator following authoritarianism, uh, digital disinformation campaigns. Marcus is also a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute. So Marcus, thank you so much for taking time to join us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So, Marcus, I'd like to start off with you wrote a, a very um, interesting piece for McLean's magazine on the whole notion that we must uh, not forget to hold the Chinese government um, to account for uh, what is the global pandemic is seeing a shutdown of economies, a breakdown of human rights, people's ability to sustain their, sustain their families, their livelihoods. Um, I'm wondering if you could just maybe tell us, uh, going back into that, like, why is this issue important? Well, that piece that I wrote, um, which really does, I mean, it, it questions um, China's responsibility in this entire pandemic. Um, it came up in a Facebook discussion. Uh, this was a few weeks ago. I just posted a, a sort of a, a, a very casual question. Um, when, when can we start talking about the, the consequences and the responsibility uh, for this pandemic? And um, clearly, I mean, China has some sort of responsibility for this. Um, they knew of this, the outbreak in Wuhan already back in November, and it took them nearly two months to really react. And the, you know, the information that's coming out or the disinformation that's coming out of China right now is, um, is that the Western world really should be lauding China for its, its uh, efforts to contain the, the virus. But I mean, they, it did nothing of the sort. Um, uh, because it dragged its feet. I mean, we're not, you can't hold China responsible for the creation of this virus. I mean, this is, this is a natural recurring uh, event, but the fact that they were unable to contain it, they used disinformation to um, obfuscate what was actually going on. And because of those, um, their negligence in this entire process in, in uh, November and December, um, we're here where we are right now with, with the pandemic. So the question is, do you know, do we hold them responsible? Is, is there some way to do that? And should we start thinking about that now? Because the toll of this pandemic, I mean, I, I think when we were, you know, six months from now, um, we won't have seen anything like this economically or, or physically. I, I agree with you. I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg. And um, it's interesting that, that you've talked, maybe you can talk a bit about how you see China responding now, how it's trying to create a, a new narrative around this. Like you said that it's trying to see or showcase itself as the savior of helping Italy and others, but at the same time, the negligence resulted in us being forced to lock up in our homes and not be able to work. Um, I'm wondering, like, what have you seen since you wrote your op-ed on the kind of disinformation tactics that we're, we're seeing coming from Beijing? Well, it's, I mean, quite frankly, it's mind-blowing. I've never seen anything like this as far as the volume of disinformation that is being thrown at us from not just China, but Russia, Iran, uh, other regimes as well. Um, and the narrative, it's a, it's a classic totalitarian tactic. 
is to uh, deny and deflect. Um, and so some of the narratives that we're seeing, and, and we're seeing these uh, promoted by um, Chinese diplomats, Chinese media, is that this virus uh, it didn't originate in Wuhan, but rather that it's a weapon, a, a U.S. biological weapon, that it was developed in, in the U.S. and somehow transported to Wuhan and released there. Uh, we've also seen uh, various narratives that uh, the virus was produced in Canada and inadvertently sent to Wuhan. So they're basically trying to throw out any sort of narrative that uh, enables them to avoid any responsibility for for this outbreak, what, any any responsibility whatsoever. So, and so they've gone these they range from these crazy narratives to to beyond. No, I, I've been seeing this take place on Twitter. The the spokesman for the Chinese Foreign Ministry. Um, you know, has been retweeting, um, as you said in your article, this conspiracy website, uh, Global Research, which is based in Montreal. I've seen yeah. him also tweet to random Americans who are kind of conspiracy theorists. Um, you know, nothing that, 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 is, that is scientific or academically proven. And it just, it's been quite incredible to me. And I imagine there's also a lot of fear in Beijing about what in the long run is we see an economic collapse, people lose their loved ones, that I, I can imagine that the ruling party in China must be also a little fearful about what this means for their relationships with the outside world, um, economic security. I mean, it really is um, something to that, that I'm thinking about, about what's going to happen in the long term. Sure. Well, I, I'm sure they're, they're quite afraid of any sort of being, uh, uh, having to be responsible for any of this or taking any responsibility for it. One of the things that I've been seeing and I've read, um, Josh Rogan in the Washington Post just last week wrote that China, that there are Chinese officials who publicly come out and have stated that they should be using the pandemic uh, to China's advantage. And so taking economic advantage of, of the chaos that's happening right now. Um, and so, you know, this, the disinformation that we're seeing, I think it's very much connected with this cynical sort of objective now. And so in, not, they're not just afraid of um, taking responsibility, but they're 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 going on the offensive with this, um, and and that I think you know Western governments should be aware of. So what when we're seeing uh, supplies sent to places like Serbia, when we're seeing them sent to Italy, um, this is the Chinese government taking you know perhaps they're helping to a certain degree, but it's really the Chinese government taking advantage of the situation and ingratiating themselves to these. Uh, to these uh, to these various governments, um, and tr and it's it's very much a PR uh, ploy on, yeah, on their and, part. And they see it as a form of soft power, right? So China's helping sure. with a lot of um, we've seen with some of the Chinese propaganda or disinformation. They always want to to have no negative comments or feelings or emotions about China, but just positive ones. And so they're trying to construe that. Uh, maybe could you tell us a bit about because you've also done a lot of work on on Russia and Russian disinformation. How is the the Russian um, uh, approach or what we're seeing or what you're reading, how is it different from China's? Do they have different objectives, different purposes? Well, I, I think the Russian approach is, is the classic Soviet approach. Um, it's, again, the objective is to sow as much confusion as possible, throw out as many conspiracy theories as possible, um, use the existing platforms that are out there um, to do this. And I think, quite frankly, the Chinese have learned from the Russians about how to do this. Um, from all my research, it seems that um, this uh, this conspiracy theory that the the virus is is coming from the U.S. or Canada, these were placed onto Russian language um, conspiracy theory websites controlled by the Russian state uh, already in early January, 
And it was from there that the Chinese propagandists took their disinformation stories and spread them out. So the, the Russians jumped on this um, quite quickly. Um, I think they saw the opportunity to um, destabilize the Western world because that's what Russia's objective and the Soviet objective was back in the Cold War, was to use disinformation to sow confusion in order to destabilize us. And so we're seeing a continuation of this. Um, and the European Union, in fact, just last week, warned of the fact that uh, Russian disinformation, not just high-level disinformation about the, uh, the origins of the virus, but specifically spreading information that could intensify the impact of coronavirus in the West. Um, and so this is not something that, you know, uh, Russophobes or those that are cr just critical of the Putin regime are, are saying, but the European Union itself is warning that the Russians are doing this. Um, and so the China, it's very easy for China to amplify those narratives. And what we're seeing now, I've seen over the past couple of days, is that Iran has jumped on board. Um, and the Iranian regime is also amplifying these, uh, these narratives. Their narratives, of course, are suited to their own objectives. And that's, uh, you know, the fact that it's, uh, or they're, they're trying to sow stories that, uh, that uh, Israel is somehow responsible for, for the pandemic and, uh, and that, that uh, Israel is trying to intensify the problem. So um, Russia is very much central to all of this. And it's, and it's quite frankly looking, I mean, it's mind blowing. If you go to a site like Russia Insider or, or uh, Global Research, as we were just talking about earlier, to, to just look at the number of these crazy narratives that they're, they're pushing uh, to the Western world, not to the Western world, but to the English speaking world and beyond. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, Russia is, this is a, it's a big issue for Russia and they're trying to take advantage of it. So, so when you talk about, I mean, some, some have argued that the disinformation we're seeing right now around the coronavirus could actually be deadly. Um, in, and yeah. the Russian, some of the propaganda that's being put out there or disinformation, it's, it's, it's aimed to sow division between everyday citizens. They don't know how to respond. But part of it is also is could put people's lives in danger by giving them wrong information and yeah. make them think that, um, that there's a conspiracy behind this. It truly is, uh, I think, a very frightening time. And, and I know some of the social media giants have been trying to get on top of this. Twitter launched, um, they found disinformation campaigns coming of Russian state actors. But it really is, seems right now that we're in an era of, of it's hard to believe anything and believe everything at the same time. Well, and that's the, exactly the message that uh, Russia Today and other Russian media is trying to put out there. There's a headline that I read, I think it was just yesterday, on RT. So RT is, of course, the the state-owned and state-operated uh, television and media um, online media platform for the Russian state, along with Sputnik. And one of the headlines was, um, "How are we are we trusting experts too much with regards to COVID-19? Mm -hmm. um, and so they were promoting people to doubt what experts are saying. And that's that could cause problems. We, we don't know if um, Russian or Chinese or Iranian propagandists are behind some of these, uh, these narratives that are promoting natural remedies for, for COVID. Um, the European Union has warned and has suggested that they could be pushing these. But these are extremely dangerous, and I'm sure you've seen them. Uh, you know, I, I, was, I was seeing them over the weekend on Facebook. I had friends who are, one of whom is a medical professional, in fact, sent me a link to an audio file from, uh, I think it was a, a Spanish woman claiming to be a worker at a hospital in the Canary Islands. The audio file suggested that by drinking soup, tea, and gargling with vinegar, 
one could kill the virus um, if you had it. So to do this regularly, you could build immunity. And when I replied to this, this friend of mine, he said, well, what's so dangerous about that? And um, it's remarkable that people don't realize that the false sense of immunity to this virus, that these otherwise seemingly harmless um, health tips might be giving, it's putting people at risk if they truly believe that, you know, having a hot bowl of soup will, will give them some sort of immunity, right? Uh, and, it's put, and it puts others at risk. So if you're walking around drinking soup thinking, you know, I'm, I'm beating this thing, you could be spreading it to your family, to your friends, uh, going, when you're going to the grocery store. So stuff is really, really dangerous, um, even though it may not seem so on the surface. No, it's, it's, it's funny you mention that because I received uh, two audio files sent by my friends on Facebook with the, that same person saying, uh, at first, if you get coronavirus, it gathers in your throat. If you have warm water, it will make it fall into your, your stomach and your stomach acids will get rid of it. And I just asked myself, I said, why, why are these strangers saying this to me? Um, I'm still keeping the social distancing, up, but, but it, it, you're right. It gives yeah. people all sense. And they might feel that, hey, as long as I'm having my tea and coffee in the morning, I can still go out and have a normal life. I might contract it and everyone else will get sick. And, and I guess that's the, the really, I guess, the human rights element of this, of this disinformation and the coronavirus where we're seeing um, people push information that could have an impact on, on, on your, your physical safety. Um, to me, that's the highlight of, the, of a human rights is, is, is not being murdered or, or, or having, living in safety. So, so it's extremely troubling. Um, I'm wondering, well, what do you think is the responsibilities then of, of dealing with this? What can Canada do? Um, does the private sector have a role in fighting this, this disinformation? What would you, what would you recommend um, that, that can or should be done? As you may know, um, I mean, I've been, I've been calling for the Canadian government um, to uh, deploy some sort of, uh, you know, whether it's a, you know, some sort of task force that looks at disinformation, monitors it, and exposes it to the Canadian public already for a number of years now. We've seen the European Union doing this. They have the uh, Eastern Stratcom that was put in place around 2014, 2015. Uh, and they have a great website that I recommend everyone go and look at. It's EU versus Disinfo. Uh, and they've done a great job of uh, constantly posting information about disinformation tactics and campaigns that are out there targeting Europeans. We, quite shockingly, don't have anything like that. We, had, we, were, we did try to address disinformation before the election. You know, my concern is, and it seems that, that the government only saw dis disinformation as an election problem, but it's not. Um, and now we're seeing the problem rise again with, obviously, with COVID-19. Um, and, you know, the government doesn't seem to be reacting to this. Um, you know, there's, of course, we need ventilators, we need masks, and we need to make sure that people are engaging in social distancing. But this disinformation, I mean, you and I both have now just, we both received that audio file. How many of our friends actually listened to that and believed it? The Canadian government needs to be taking this very seriously because um, this sort of disinformation could cost lives. Um, and, you know, the government needs to be working with media, um, other organizations to expose this and debunk it on an ongoing basis. Whenever we see these disinformation efforts, you know, we should have a place, in, the government should have a place where we can report them, anyone can report them. 
Um, and you know, whether it's Health Canada or any sort of website they built, they need to be to be bringing exposing these efforts and making sure that there's a place where Canadians can go and, and learn about this information so that they're not fooled by these these efforts. Because this isn't this is only the start. Like you said, it's the tip of the iceberg. Um, and these regimes will try to use the same sorts of tactics and they'll only intensify it as, as, we, as we go forward over the next weeks and months. I saw, I saw a, um, a think tank uh, expert in London about a, a month ago say that there's an unspoken global war right now between the major tech titans in Silicon Valley and authoritarian regimes in which authoritarian regimes have really um, learned to use these social media platforms to penetrate yep. societies to wreak havoc, um, and I'm wondering. I, I think it's it's true. Like we, we we're responding, but it seems over the election, it seems we're we're responding in a very ad hoc manner to election interference or or you know cyber attack or whatever. But we we don't have a grand plan, and I'm wondering why that is. If it's complacency, if it's if it's a belief that you know we're the good guys, no one really we don't have any enemies. I just I, I hope that we'll have um, a wake up call, and and these discussions uh, might. Uh, reach some of the policymakers that would think about this and start giving some resources to people outside of government that really want to, to work on this. So you, you've talked about what can an individual citizen do? We talked about there's no portal to report disinformation. <laughs> if you see something online, you can, you can report a tweet. If you think it's false, report something to Facebook or if your friend shares something, you can say, hey, that's not real. Don't do that. But is, is that sufficient? Or, or do these tech companies you think also might be able to ramp up their efforts or, or work more collaboratively with with individual citizens and NGOs. Well, I think the tech companies are really bad at at doing this. They they're they haven't been doing it over the past number of years, even though governments have asked them to do it. Um, I think they're in a panic with COVID nineteen and trying to address the problem. I think they're doing an okay job. You know, if you go and search COVID on Twitter or Facebook, that immediately there's a a Facebook site that comes up at the top of the search that tells you. To, to, to follow a link to reliable information. So, you know, I, I, I think they're trying. Um, I think that Canadians themselves, you know, when they do see this disinformation, like you and I saw over the weekend, we need to be exposing it and telling our friends to stop spreading disinformation like that. But the problem is how does a regular Canadian, the average citizen, you know, how do they recognize this as disinformation? That's, that's a big problem. And I think the, so these uh, these social media giants do have a role to play in that. Um, you know, the audio file that you and I were talking about. You mentioned earlier that these uh, these authoritarian and totalitarian regimes have become quite clever in the way that they they share information. Well, that audio file, um, if you think about it, it's it's very hard to report it. You can report a post on Facebook. You can report a post on Twitter. But when someone sends you an individual audio file like that, it's very difficult to to report it. So it's actually quite clever the way that this that specific piece of disinformation was spread mm -hmm. virally. Um, and so it's, you know, again, the tech, the tech uh, giants and the social media companies, they need to, to, keep, to monitor these, uh, these issues and uh, certainly empower the, the users to, to help identify and, uh, and ensure that this sort of information isn't spread uh, on, their, on their platforms. You know, Marcus, I'm, I might end with one last, maybe a reflection, and then ask you to give a comment because um, you've already donated at least 20 minutes of your time towards this. Um, you know, one thing that I've been doing is when I when I see disinformation online, particularly on Twitter, coming from the Chinese foreign ministry that's claiming the U.S. Army is behind this and and spreading just false info, which is not true. Um, I've been reporting them to Twitter, and 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 one of my additional concerns is that. 
you have these authoritarian governments that don't allow um, their citizens to use or have access to Twitter or Facebook or these tech platforms, but yet at the same time, they're allowed to use them publicly to spread misinformation. I, I, I just wonder, yeah. should the tech companies have a policy that says, if you're an authoritarian government like Iran, Russia, or China, if you don't allow your citizens to access our services, we shouldn't allow the heads of those regimes to use them for whatever purpose. I, I don't know if that's an idea worth pursuing or if you've thought about that, but it's something that, that I definitely have been thinking about in the last few weeks. For sure, it's a, it's a problem. We've seen the, the Chinese have taken great advantage of this in spreading their US uh, virus conspiracy theories, certainly here in, in Sweden and elsewhere. I would only say that, you know, I, I think we, when we're looking at ways to address this problem, we need to make sure that we um, also defend uh, the values of, of, of free speech. Um, you know, I, I'm not a fan of censoring, but, and those of other, you know, known propagandists, so to speak, is instead of, you know, on Twitter, there's the blue symbol. Perhaps on those accounts, there could be a red symbol. <laughs> that could, <laughs> I love this, I love this. Right, that clearly identifies them as I mean, red is dangerous or a yellow mark or something like that. So that when you see these, these uh, individuals, whether they're diplomats, heads of states, uh, or just propaganda organizations like RT or Sputnik, when they're tweeting, you can identify them as, as being such. Um, and don't forget, I mean, with the CRTC, if we're talking about you know, films that have violence, swearing, sex, I mean, we, we place labels on those to warn Canadians before they watch them. Why on earth not do that with foreign propagandists, you know, so that Canadians know what they're seeing and before they get into it and are reminded periodically that this is a foreign uh, state media outlet or a, a propaganda uh, platform or something like that. That's something that we could do without uh, interfering with our, our values of freedom of speech. Well, I think this is a perfect time to, uh, to draw our interview to the end. You left us with a, a really interesting idea that can be considered by the tech companies or civil society groups to lobby for, and I think I think we're going to have to get uh, you know more and more people together thinking about this because it's it clearly is it's a challenge and not everyone has an answer. So, Marcus, thank you so much for taking time, and and uh, I look forward to talking to you soon. Good to talk to you, Kyle.